somewhere in our Audible this morning, I have misplaced my Bible. And I have a pew Bible in my hand, and I'm going to use it, and I hope you brought your Bible and using it too, but the print is so small in these. Who ordered these? Uh, again, yeah, okay. So um, I'm going to have to use my glasses a little bit more than I would like. Um, I just don't want to be a distraction. But take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 1. We want to consider some little-known characters in the uh, Christmas story. Uh, last week we talked about the prophets and the fact that they really didn't understand all the things that they were prophesying about. How did they write about it then? Well, because they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were led by the Holy Spirit to write the exact words that God intended. And if, if, they, um, if they had understood, if that had been their position, they could have written the words without the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but they didn't understand. So we saw that. We saw that those were written hundreds and indeed sometimes a thousand or more years before the birth of Jesus. And this week, we want to look at Zacharias. Uh, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about Zacharias, but much of the first chapter, some of it's about Mary and the uh, Annunciation of Jesus' birth to Mary, but much of the chapter is about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias and Elizabeth are the father and mother of John the Baptist. So that's the relationship there. I, I don't know if you realize that, but uh, Jesus and John were cousins. Uh, Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, so what does that make them? Second cousins? I don't remember how it works, but uh, Jesus and John the Baptist were related. Here in uh, Luke, I'd like to read to you verses 1 through 6, and I want you to notice the difference between verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, those four verses, and verses 5 and 6. So we're in Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 6. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. That's all one sentence. Now, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of some of the law documents I've read. And I, I, I call it legalese, right? Now, he isn't using legalese, but we do know that Luke was a doctor. He was a very well-educated man, and he's using very good oratorical Greek here to, to write this sentence. One sentence. Now notice the next two uh, uh, verses. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. I'm going to read verse 7. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And if you look down through the rest of the chapter, you'll see a bunch of short sentences that all began, that all begin, almost all of them, not all, almost all of them begin with the word, and. Now, I was talking just recently with a young person. How many of you can remember back to your high school English and composition days, and remember that your teacher told you to never begin a sentence with the word, and? Yeah. 
So what's going on here? And I want to bring this out because I want to increase your confidence that this is the very Word of God. What's going on here is Luke writes a one-sentence prologue, a one-sentence opening statement to his historic, historical recollection of the events. And then when he starts in verse 5, he is basically... I know he's led by the Holy Spirit, don't, don't misunderstand, but he's basically recounting eyewitness testimony that happened. You say, well, how do you know it was eyewitness testimony? Because that's what verse 2 says. Look at it with me. Even as they delivered them unto us, which were, excuse me, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Now, I don't know exactly who Luke talked to for this story. It's probably not Zacharias and Elizabeth because this is written some 45 or 50 years after these events, maybe 60 years after these events, and uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were already um, well-stricken in age, and they probably did not live that much longer. It wasn't John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist lost his head. Herod, one of the Herods, uh, this would be Herod Antipas, uh, instructed, gave orders for his executioner to cut off John the Baptist's head. But there were people here who were very close to this story, and Luke must have met them, and he's writing down, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing down their eyewitness testimony. And those people would not have been Greeks. The first sentence, first four verses, written in excellent Greek. The rest of this is written in Greek, but again, he's translating in his, in his mind either, or maybe he's actually written out the, the uh, Hebrew text, but he's translating from their language, Hebrew, Aramaic, into Greek. And so he's using Aramaic... Hebrew forms and transferring them into the Greek. And in Hebrew, there's two things you'll notice. A lot of their sentences begin with the word and. They join these things together. If you want to know the theological term, I, I learned it this week, so I'll share it with you. Parataxis. It's not important, but it's, it's a fun word. Parataxis. The second thing you'll notice is parallelism. They'll say one thing, and then they'll say it in a slightly different form. And we'll see that more when we look at Zacharias' praise toward the end of the message today. But I want you to notice that what we're dealing with here is eyewitness testimony. People that were there and saw and heard and talked to Zacharias and talked to Elizabeth. Uh, later in, in this chapter, we'll have folks who are eyewitnesses. Maybe Luke spoke to Mary herself and heard her eyewitness testimony about what happened. Today we're just going to focus on Zacharias, a little bit on Elizabeth, but mostly on Zacharias. And so let me tell you a little bit about Zacharias and who he was and, and what his job was. Zacharias was a priest. He was uh, serving in the temple. Now, the, it mentions that he was of the course of Abiah. You can go back to 1 Chronicles, and David uh, organized all of the priests into 24 courses, into 24 groups, and they would come and they would serve. They would only serve for one week, then they would take a long break and they'd serve a second week in any given year. So they'd serve for two weeks, but they were not consecutive. They were two different times. And in between those times, those uh, priests would have a chance to go back to their hometown. And maybe they were farmers or maybe they were craftsmen. Perhaps they were merchants. But they would have a job that would pay the bills. Now, when they were at the temple, they were allowed to eat from the sacrifices that came to the temple. That, that was how they were uh, provided for. But then they'd go home and they'd have a job. Now, most in, in, in the time of the second temple, we call this Herod's temple or the second temple, 
most of the priests lived in one of two places. History tells us they lived in a, in a uh, district in Jerusalem, or they lived in Jericho. Many of them lived in Jericho, and they'd come up to Jerusalem that two times a year. Now, one of the evidences for that in the Bible, that, that information comes from outside sources, but one evidence for that in the Bible, you recall the story of the Good Samaritan. You have this guy who's beat up by the side of the road, and a Levite passes by him, and a priest passes by him, going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of Bible evidence for it. But they would live in these two areas, either Jericho or in Jerusalem. But the Bible tells us that Elizabeth and that Zacharias did not live in one of these two places. They lived in the hill country of Judah. And uh, Josephus particularly tells us that those priests that lived in the hill country of Judah were sort of seen like uh, country bumpkins. They weren't really, I mean, they were priests, and yes, they had a job, but they were looked down on because they weren't part of the, the, the in crowd, so to speak, among the priests. So Zacharias already had to, to deal with that. Now, what we're going to find out is that Zacharias is finally, and I'll tell you why I use that word in a second, he's finally chosen by lot, he's finally chosen to go into the holy place of the temple to offer the incense upon the altar of incense. See, what happens is these priests, they would come, big groups of them, like I said, by course, and they'd be there for that entire week. And during that entire week, there were lots of priestly duties around the temple. And each day, they would choose lots for three priests. One would go into the holy place and would prepare the altar of incense. One would then go in and put new coals on top. And then the third man would come in and actually offer the incense upon the altar. And it was considered such a privilege. It was considered such a privilege that you could only be given that privilege once in your lifetime. After you had gone in that one time to offer the incense, you would still work around the temple, do the other jobs, but you would never do that job again so that they could pass that honor among the priests. Now, I don't know how often it was that a young man was picked. I don't know how often it was that a middle-aged man was picked. But by the time you got to be well-stricken in years, and many commentators think that would have been about 60 years old. I don't think 60 is well-stricken in years <laughs> anymore. I used to. But uh, yeah, amen. Uh, by the time you got to that age, you probably would have already been picked. So for years, Zacharias has missed out on his opportunity to go into the temple and offer the incense. He's seen his friends chosen and other friends chosen, but he's never been picked for that particular honor. Now, the Bible tells us in verse 6 that Zacharias and his wife were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They took seriously God's commands, and they honored the Lord with their lives. And we know that most priests at this time did not do that. Most priests were interested in money because on at least two occasions, Jesus came into the temple. He found money changers. He found people selling sacrificial animals and he turned over the tables and he drove the animals out of the temple. And he said, this is to be a house of prayer, but you, speaking to the priests, Jesus said to the priests, you have made it a den of thieves. So I just want to point out that there's always been trouble for God's people. I think most of the time we've been in a very serious minority. And yet here are two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are faithful to God 
despite other priests and other people having other plans and doing other things. Now, when this uh, account begins, it's Zacharias's turn to go in and offer that incense. So what happens is the other priests are outside in what they call the courtyard of the priests, and they are to be praying, while one man goes in, like I mentioned, and he cleans up anything that needs to be dealt with on the altar. He leaves. Second man comes in. He puts new coals on the altar, spreads them out. And now it's Zacharias' turn to go into the temple, the, not the Holy of Holies. That's only gone into once a year by the high priest. But into the holy place, there's the menorah, the candlestick. There's the table of showbread. He's to go in there and he's to put new incense on the altar. And the incense represents the prayers of God's people going up to God. Meanwhile, the other priests, they're out in the courtyard and they're praying. And this job doesn't take too long. You go in, put new incense on the coals, and you go out. Maybe a few minutes, I don't know how long. But it would become, for most of these priests, it had just become another ritual, another part of their work that they had to do get through the day so I could go home. But this time was different. If you've never read this story, I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own. This time something's wrong because Zacharias goes in there and he doesn't come out. I mean, not right away. And because this is the holy place, this is the temple, you don't just run in there to find out what's going on. So all his friends, fellow priests, they're out there praying. Zacharias goes in, a few minutes pass, and he doesn't come out, and they keep praying, and a few more minutes go by, and he doesn't come out, and now they're beginning to think, what is he up to? And a few more minutes go by, and he still doesn't come out, and now some of them are probably scratching their heads. How long do we have to wait before we make sure, you know, he's not passed away, or something's happened? I mean, what, why? What would take him so long? And finally, Zacharias emerges from the temple, he comes out through the doors, and they, I'm sure some of his friends, what would you do? You'd rush up to him. Zacharias, what happened? What took you so long? And Zacharias, he can't speak. Now, they don't immediately recognize that. I'm sure Zacharias does. He's, he's trying to communicate, and he can't communicate. You know what I would do? I would use hand gestures. Right? I'd try to use hand gestures to explain what had happened if I couldn't talk. So I'm sure he's wildly gesturing, and the people are scratching their head. Now he's, being, he's making a mockery of us. First he goes in there, and he spends a long time doing what we don't know. And then when he comes out, he won't tell us what he's doing. And instead he plays charades. I'm sure the people were very frustrated with Zacharias. But you know the story. What had happened to Zacharias when he went into the holy place to offer the incense? He was just going in to do his job. An honored job, yes. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, yes. But he did not expect that when he went in to the holy place to offer those sacrifices that he would meet with an angel. But he did. He met with an angel. You can read the story for yourself on the right side of the altar of incense, there was an angel standing, and the angel said, your prayers have been heard, Zacharias. Now, I want to I say this. I don't think, as I read the passage, as I read some other people who've read the passage, I don't think 
that Zacharias was any longer praying for a son. I want to make that really clear. I think he was done. He and Elizabeth were done praying for a son. They knew, or they thought they knew, that that time was past. In verse 18, you'll see that that was his first response to the angel. He said, look, we're, we're old. We're well stricken in years. We're, we're not going to have any children. That's what he says to the angel. But I do think that Zacharias was praying for the Messiah to be born. In Luke chapter 1, go to the end of the chapter, almost the end of the chapter, verse 68, 69 and 70. When Zacharias' voice comes back, and I'm going to talk to you in a minute about how that happens and why that happens, but when his voice finally does come back, here's the first thing that John, that John, that's his son, that Zacharias does. The first thing that Zacharias does is he praises God. And this is what he says, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. He had been praying for that Messiah. He realized the corruption and the hypocrisy and the pretend that was going on in the temple rituals. He could see that most of his fellow priests were more interested in money than in serving God. And that bothered him. Perhaps that's why he chose not to live in one of those two districts, Jericho or the, the, the Jerusalem district where the priests lived. Maybe he wanted to be separate and he wanted to be apart from all that. He had been praying for a Messiah, and now the angel tells him, your prayer has been heard. Go back to um, uh, verse 11, Luke 1, 11, And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. That's the prayer for Messiah. And thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him, that is the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18, And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife, well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. Now, it doesn't mean stupid. We often use that as a, as a synonym for stupid. It means you can't speak. You will not be able to speak. He says that until the day that these things shall be performed, until the day of his son's birth, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. That's the reason when he finally comes out, that he's unable to talk, because the angels told him, you're not going to be able to speak until this son is, is born. Now, you know, often we think of these stories in the Bible almost like fairy tales, like, yeah, like fairy tales, like stories that we make up for our children. But I want you to understand, and this is a good example, many of these stories are about adult problems. They're not children's stories. 
Now, I'm glad we teach them to our children. And those of you that, that serve the Lord in that way, teaching our children, please keep teaching them to our children. But really, our children can't understand the heart, the, 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 the core of these stories, often until they become adults because they deal with adult problems. One of the adult problems is mentioned is childlessness. Children don't understand childlessness. I have learned by experience there's usually two types of children. There's one type of child that wants more siblings, and the other type of child wants less siblings. When I was about five, four or five years old, my youngest brother was born, and my grandma asked me, what, your mom is bringing home your brother Robert today. What do you want to do with him? I said, throw him in the trash. <laughs> I did not want another brother. I was very happy, me and my brother, my mom and my dad, we, we're a happy family. Why add another one? We don't understand, children don't understand childlessness. We don't. This is an adult problem. It's a painful problem. I, I've not personally experienced it, but those of you who do know it's, it's a problem, number one, that you really can't explain to someone who's had children. How, how do you explain that? And there's a second issue, and that is it can cause you to question God. Does God really know what he's doing? I mean, I, I'm, I'm praying, and I want you to see here, they're not childless as some sort of punishment or chastisement because God tells us in verse 6 that they're righteous and blameless. Childlessness is not a punishment. Here they are, they don't have any children. So it's an adult problem. You know, I think, having read the chapter, read some background and context, I think that Zacharias was definitely unfulfilled at work. And again, that's an adult problem. Kids don't have that problem. I've never had a child come to me and say, I keep going to school and I just don't get any joy out of it. They do say that, but not the way I mean it. But some of you, you've worked a job for decades, you've done the same job, and, and, and it's just not rewarding. People are overlooking you for promotions. People don't appreciate the work that you do. You're faithful because you love God and you believe that everything you do, you ought to do it heartily as unto the Lord. But the people around you don't notice. Think about Zacharias. He has been a priest now for decades. And other of his fellow priests, <coughs> excuse me, other of his friends have had a chance to offer incense. He's never had a chance. Many of the men who had a chance to offer incense, they're just fakers. They're, they're not really serious about serving God. They're just interested in the money and the prestige of being a priest. And then on top of that, when Zacharias and Elizabeth's son is born, he's a problem child. Now, I don't mean he was disrespectful and disobedient. I believe him to be a very obedient and respectful child. But he's the type of person who wears funny clothes and lives out in the desert. He didn't fit into society. And maybe you have a child that doesn't fit into society. They just don't do well. I mean, they're not bad. They're not evil. They just don't fit into society. Guess what? Who knew that feeling? Zacharias and Elizabeth. So these are adult problems. And adult problems can make us question God. And on top of that, there is no happy ending here. When Zacharias dies, the same priests that were in control of the temple before, who were only concerned about money and prestige, they're still in control of the temple, and they're still control, they're still, their thoughts are still filled with money and prestige. Yes, Elizabeth has a son, and she's happy for that. She rejoices. We'll see that uh, later in the chapter. 
But what happens to that son? He's beheaded. He's executed. Why? Because he did something wrong? Because he was a murderer? Because he, he was a, a thief and a robber? No, because he spoke the truth. He was executed. So what are some of the le lessons that we can learn from these two lives? Let me give you three lessons today. The first lesson, oops, that, there it is. Our lives do not go according to our plans. Now, if you're still young enough that your life has gone exactly according to your plan so far, just enjoy it while you can. <laughs> you don't have to live very long. You don't have to spend many years as an adult before something is going to go wrong. Something is not going to go according to your plan. And our lives never go according to our plans. I know it didn't go according to Zacharias's and Elizabeth's plan. Why? They had planned to have a child, maybe many children. Boys and girls, raise a whole family. Train them in, in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and raise them up to be that next generation of Jews that would stand for righteousness and live blameless. And at the end of 35 or 40 years of marriage, they had exactly zero children. Life never goes according to our plans. Here's Zacharias, and he's intending that someday he'll get a chance to offer incense upon the altar, and he's going to take it seriously. Some of the other priests may not. Some of the other priests may just see it as a ritual, but he's going to be so serious about it. It's going to be the, the, the most important day of his career. And for year after year after year after year, he's passed over. And he goes home at the end of his week of service and his wife says, did you get to offer incense this year? And he says, nope. Did you get to offer incense this time? Nope. Did you get to put the incense on the altar of Zacharias? Nope. And if we don't learn to surrender our hopes and our plans and our futures to God, we become very frustrated and angry. A person with a controlling spirit has a fear-based insistence on managing outcomes to his likings. He must have his way. He's fearful of letting go. Now, I want to point out to you, and hear my heart here. I'm not making fun. That is very childish. Think about your two-year-old, your three-year-old. What makes them a two-year-old or a three-year-old? They throw tantrums when they don't get their way. They see another child's toy... And they don't say kindly, I would like a toy like that. They go over and they take the toy violently away. And if the other child is assertive, the other child bops him on the head and takes it back. <laughs> and if the other child's passive, they sit over in the corner and they whimper and they cry because they didn't get their way. A big part of growing up, young people hear me, a big part of growing up is leaving that desire for control behind and surrendering to God's plan for your life. Surrender to God's plan for your life. It's going to be different for you than it is for me. But as long as you insist on trying to control all the outcomes, you are going to be frustrated. And I'll, I'll tell you a little secret, and I don't have time to expand on this. Uh, it's not a secret. Other people know it too. But something that we don't often talk about, we need to talk more about. God gets the maximum glory for his plan when the time for fulfillment of God's plan seems to be past. And then he works a miracle. Let's go back to Abraham. I've been reading through the book of Genesis again in my personal time with God. Think about Abraham. 
He's 75 years old when God says, you're going to have a son. And his wife is about 65, if I understand right. She's about 10 years younger. And he says to God, God, you know, you don't understand. My wife's old enough. She, you know, the manner of women, it's, it's past. That, that time is past. We're not going to have any kids. And then how much longer do they wait before Isaac is born? 25 years. God wants to make sure everybody is sure. That this is just not, you know, that unexpected child. This is a miracle child. Think about Joseph. A couple generations afterwards, here's Joseph, and he has some dreams that his brothers are going to bow down to him. Then he has a dream that his brothers and his parents are going to bow down to him. And he is so sure that he, God has a special thing for him until he's sold into slavery. Now, how does that work? Not only is he sold into slavery, but despite his best efforts and despite being recognized as a great slave doing the job that he's been asked to do, he's falsely accused and he's thrown into prison. Now tell me how you fix that one. When you're in prison for a crime you did not commit, in fact, you're in prison because you did not commit the crime, how do you fix that? Oh, God has a plan. He brings along the butler and the baker. Of course, the baker dies, butler lives, but Joseph says, listen, Listen, Butler, when you get back in the presence of Pharaoh, just tell him I'm here and it's unjust. I shouldn't be here. Let, just tell him what, who I am and, and, and I, help me get out of here. And the butler says, I will. I, I, trust me, I'll tell you. And the butler leaves prison and he forgets about Joseph. How, 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 do, you, how do you get out? Now, I'll tell you, God has a plan. If Joseph would have gotten out at that point, he would have probably went back to his family and when Pharaoh needed someone to interpret the dream, Joseph would have been gone. <clears throat> so God says, you know what, Joseph? God doesn't say to Joseph, but God says in his own mind, you know what, Joseph? I want to keep you in prison so I know where you are when Pharaoh needs someone to interpret his dream. And it takes two whole years before the Butler is standing in the presence of Pharaoh one day and Pharaoh has a dream and he can't remember all the details and he surely can't remember what it is and he says, listen, I need someone to interpret the dream and all of his resources fail him. And the butler says, what, what, wait a minute, you know what? <laughs> I met a guy a couple of years ago. I think he can help you. God has a plan. Your life is not going to go the way you think it will. God has a plan. Are you surrendered to God's plan for your life? That's point one. <laughs> okay, let's just stay there for a bit. Are you surrendered to God's plan for your life? Your, your, your career is not going to go the way you plan. I, I can tell you that. Now, I don't know how it's going to go, but it's not going to go the way you plan. Your health is not going to go the way you plan. I have some relatives of mine, some, we call them shirt tail relatives. Boy, they were so careful how they ate. They, they, they were very strict about staying away from man-made substances and only eating whole foods and things like that. I don't know all that we, they went through. I do know this. Whenever I would go to their house to eat, I didn't know what I was eating. <laughs> that kind of serious. And they were shocked when they went in and the doctor said, you have high cholesterol. You've got to get this under control. Yeah, but I've been eating right. There's people, they had dreams, they were going to get married, they were going to have children, they were going to have a big family, and God said, no. 
There's people who want to be married. They even had the person picked out. And then God said no. <coughs> and if you are not surrendered to God's plan for your life, you're going to be frustrated and angry and disappointed. You're going to be tempted to take your happiness into your own hands. You're going to be tempted to say, you know what? If God can't do it, I'll show God how to do it. And trust me, that is not going to work. People who chase after their own happiness never find it. People who make fulfillment and, 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 and success in life their main goal never seem to reach it. And I have example after example of, of, of successes in business and successes in sports and successes in the entertainment industry that will tell you this did not bring me happiness. I am not satisfied with my life. But I want you to notice that Zacharias and Mary were not, and Zacharias and Elizabeth were not like that. Zacharias and Elizabeth continued to faithfully serve God even when they didn't get their way. I'm going to skip over the second point and go right on to the third one. If I can. Here we go. Maybe? No. Okay, pay no attention to the screen. Here's the third point. Every Christian regularly should have an encounter with God. Every Christian regularly should have an encounter with God. Let me give you three types of, three types of Christians that I've observed. I know Christians that just don't care anymore. They just don't care. Now, they're probably not here this morning <clears throat> because they don't care. Maybe you've met one. Maybe you have a family member like this. Hey, come to church with me. Christmas. Ah, I've done that. We met a guy yesterday. We were out um, meeting people in the community, and he said, oh, I, yeah, I grew up Catholic. Then I went to a Baptist church. He even named the Baptist church. And boy, in my limited knowledge of Baptist churches in the area, I recognize that name. It was a, it was a good Baptist church. And he said, but I, I, I don't believe anymore. Now, it's a good thing that our salvation does not depend on us. It depends on God. Let's leave those people aside. You know, there's a lot of Christians, and maybe some of you are in this state. You care, but you haven't encountered God in a while, and so for you, the Christian life has become a drudgery and a chore. Just a job to be done. Now, maybe you go through the motions. I tell you what, every single day, 24 hours a day, Seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 days on leap years, there were priests in the temple who were going through the motions and the rituals. But it meant nothing to them. Zacharias may have been in that same boat until he had an encounter with God. When's the last time you had an encounter with God? Now, I'm not talking about mere emotionalism, although I've been emotional in my encounters with God's, God before. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. You're reading your Bible. You're not reading your Bible because you have to. You're not reading your Bible because we're doing a scripture reading. You're just reading your Bible on your own, own time, in your own place. And all of a sudden, a scripture jumps out at you and God says, that's for you. When's the last time that happened to you? When's the last time you were in prayer? for someone, and you literally began to weep for them because your heart was so broken for them. 
and God had to minister comfort to you. When's the last time you were praying and your prayers turned into shouts of praise as you realized how good God was to you? When's the last time that happened to you? When's the last time you came here to this building, to this place, and you had an encounter with God in this room? We sing every Sunday. Every Sunday we sing. But when was the last time as you were singing the words and the music and the presence of God, all of a sudden it was real to you? You weren't just singing. You were singing in the presence of God. Now we can drum up, uh, with music, we can drum up an emotional experience. I'm not talking about that. I've had an emotional experience listening to bad music. I'm not talking about an emotional experience. I'm talking about you realize you're in the presence of God. When's the last time you came, again, to this room, when we meet to worship, and through the preaching of God's word, you were convicted about your sin? When's the last time that happened to you? Now, if you say to me, well, boy, that hasn't happened for decades. Boy, you must be a really good person. I mean, really? You, you never feel like God has anything for you in his word? I have to, I'm just going to be candid. Most of the time when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm preaching about what God's speaking to me about. God said to me, Scott, you have a problem. You better deal with this. And I don't bring it to you. Well, you know, nope, this, this doesn't happen to anybody. When's the last time you were convicted about sin? When's the last time you came? Again, I'm talking about when you came to this place and we were going to worship and you became excited, excited because you were about to worship the God of heaven. I, I, we don't want to be a church that just goes through the motions. Remember, a church is not this building. The church is us. We don't want to be a church that goes through the motions. We are not... I'm, I'm going to say this, and I know I've thought much about it this week. We are not a safe church. If you're looking for a safe church, it's going to make you feel good and going to coddle you and, and make you feel comfortable. Go to another church. We're not a safe church. Because we serve a God who is holy, and that ought to terrify us. When's the last time you realized God and His holiness could judge the world and be righteous? We're not a safe church. We're going to ask you to do stuff. You say, I, I don't feel comfortable doing. Find a church where you don't need to do anything then. We're not a safe church. We don't come here on Sundays to feel good. We come here on Sundays to be in the presence of God and to worship a God who is worthy. So many Christians, they live in this gray area. They don't live in the darkness because God's brought them out of the darkness and we can praise them for that. But they live in this... This sort of gray area of shadows and fog. And they don't want to come out into the light. And this church is going to call you week after week after week. Don't live in the gray area. Come out into the light. It's not a safe church. We want you to encounter God. Because an encounter with God is going to change your life. It's going to change your life and it's going to change the lives of the people around you. When Zacharias came out of the temple, he was different. Number one, he couldn't talk. 
If you think an encounter with God makes you jump up and down and tell everybody about it, you didn't encounter God. When Job encounters God, he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah met with God, he said, Woe unto me, for I am, an, I am, an unclean, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When Paul was caught up to the third heaven, he said, I don't even want to talk about it. An encounter with God is not an emotional experience that makes you feel good and makes you, brings you up in the prestige of other people. An encounter with God humbles you and brings you down on your knees. And you're overwhelmed with the sense of God's infiniteness. When's the last time you encountered God? It changes who you are. It changes your thinking. Before Zacharias encountered that angel, he thought, there's no way we could have a son. There's no way the Messiah could come in our lifetime. I'm going to keep praying for the Messiah. I'm going to ask God because that's the only thing we can, that's the only thing that's going to help us, but he's not going to come in my lifetime. How do I know this? Because the angel said, Zacharias, you're not going to be able to talk because you don't believe. But when he came out of that temple, guess what? He believed. He went home. His wife had a son. The Messiah came. When you encounter God, it changes your thinking. It changes your behavior. It leaves you speechless. The encounters with God make us who we are. You know why there's so many Christians, and I don't know their hearts, but they call themselves Christians. You know why there's so many Christians who don't care anymore? Because they never encounter God. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they're not God's child. I don't know if it's because they don't care. I don't know, but they don't encounter God. And so they're not very impressed by him. The reason some of you are just going through the motions, you know, you've, you're here today. Thank you for coming. Don't, don't misunderstand, but that's not enough. It wasn't enough for the priest to just come to the temple and go through the motions and go, go through their week and then go home and then a couple of months later come back to the temple. And that's not enough. God wants to have an encounter with you. He doesn't want to have it, you to have an encounter with me. I'm not impressive. God wants you to have an encounter with Him. Young people, it's not enough to trust in your parents' faith. Your parents have nothing. It's God. You need to have an encounter with God. So that their relationship is real to you. It'll change who you are. Christians who encounter God, they have peace. Christians who encounter God, they have joy. Christians, Christians who encounter God are eager to serve. Christians that encounter God, they don't really care about what other people think of them. You say, Pastor, you're going to drive a lot of people away from your church saying it's not a safe church. The glory of God is what's important here. Not my comfort. Not your comfort. And God is more concerned about His glory than my comfort. And frankly, in my flesh, I don't like that. I say, God, I'm serving you. Can't you make me comfortable? I'm sure Zacharias and Elizabeth said, God, we're serving you. Can't you just give us a child? And God didn't give him a child until it was God's time. Way past human time. It was God's time. When's the last time that you encountered God? 
in your personal time with him? When's the last time you encountered God here? If you've not encountered God for a while, I'm going to ask you, not now, but when you get home, take time to get on your knees and say, God, I need an encounter with you. I need to know you're real, that we have a relationship. God is far, far, far more interested in having a relationship with you than you're interested in having a relationship with him. I can guarantee you that. When there's something between me and God, it's always on my side. Let me say that again. When there's something between me and God, it's always on my side. Turn to me. God says, draw nigh unto me, and I will draw nigh unto you. Go home, ask for an encounter with God. And as long as you're satisfied to not encounter God, you won't encounter him. Now, he may intervene, and he's done that for me, and I'm so grateful that he didn't let me just bebop my way through selfishness. But I know he wants to talk to you. I know he wants to have a meeting with you. Are you willing to set aside time to have a meeting with him? That's the question. And if you're not comfortable with that, if you don't want to talk about God and you don't want God in your life, don't come back here. Because every week, I'm going to say again, have you had an encounter with God? Does he matter to you? What else is church for? We're just going to play? If you're going to play, there's other churches where you can play. Please, don't come back here. Father in heaven, we, we need to have, I need to have an encounter with you more often. I can go through the motions of being a pastor and being a friend and being a mentor and act as if you are just somewhere out there. Instead of the holy, almighty, all-powerful God who lives inside of me and who wants to meet with me daily. I can pretend that I'm a good Christian and a good pastor and a good father. I need an encounter with you. These people need an encounter with you. My dear Christian sisters and my dear Christian brothers, they need an encounter with you. Some of these young people, they're just bebopping through life. They're just, their parents are good parents. Their parents have led them in the right way. And they're just going to keep going as long as they can on their parents' uh, integrity. And Father, grab a hold of their hearts and encounter them. Meet with them so that they say, Oh God, Thou art my God. Give us young people who are on fire. Give us middle-aged people who are on fire. Give us older people who are on fire for you because we encounter you regularly. We realize you are real. That you matter in our lives. We pray for this. We pray that you would not let us be a safe church, a comfortable church. But we'd be a place where people are stirred up We'd be a place where people are directed to you. Lord, we need this. Our country needs this. More churches that are more interested in your glory than their own comfort. So we pray for this, and we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.